the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground Horses raised, heads bowed down We're gathered here on hallowed ground To sing this song away Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This show is mostly about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes you need to pay legally. We don't like paying taxes, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And as you know, we start each week's segment with one of the attorneys in our office, and here's one of our semi-regulars, Nicole Donnelly. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Now, what did you want to talk about, Nicole? I think we've been seeing it come up a lot and it happens a lot during this time. Everybody gets these letters from the Department of Finance in regards to their tax exemptions for their home. Some people see it and throw it out. They don't even read it. Other people kind of say, maybe I need to talk to my accountant, maybe my lawyer. Um, let's just tell the people what exemptions are out there for them and what they could be taking advantage of because they really do help when it comes to property taxes. Yeah, and uh, you know, and that's a good point because a lot of times, let's say f- for the sake of argument, you bought your house years ago, and maybe you weren't eligible for one of those exemptions years ago, and you are now. And one example is when Beth, when we bought our house, I wasn't eligible for the veterans exemption, right? Because they reworked the law a few years after we bought the house, and at that point, I was eligible for the well, you're telling veterans why. exemption. Well. The, the law was originally written on the veterans exemption for World War II veterans and guys who served during the Vietnam era didn't quite fat match the the guidelines. You know, you're mustering out pay, stuff like that, which we didn't have in, in the 70s. So they rewrote it and basically it came down to if you were in active duty during time of war, you were entitled to an exemption. So let's say in... Let's say you bought your house in 1982. You weren't eligible for a veterans exemption, and then they changed the law. And I'm not sure when they changed it, late 80s, early 90s. They changed it, and those of us who served 
you know, during the Vietnam War era, then got an exemption. Our real estate taxes have been reduced forever since. And uh, another exemption that takes place uh, a, a lot, like senior citizens exemption. Somebody buys their house, let's say, in 1982. They're now 82 or something 40 years later. And, you know, they weren't entitled to the senior citizens exemption when they bought the house in 1982. But now they are. Let me get back to the veterans exemption, by the way. Those guys who served in in the military between 1955 and 1962, way back, you weren't entitled to exemption because you didn't serve during time of war. I don't know exactly what happened, what the reasoning was, but now anybody who served on active duty from World War II, from the Korean War, through the Vietnam War, is entitled to an exemption. Um, and they're, now they phased it in. At first, they, you know, you were entitled to a, I don't know what you call it, Cold War Warrior Act exemption. And, but now they changed the definition of a Vietnam War era veteran from anybody who served on active duty from 1955 until 1975, 20 years. And I'm not even sure if they've upgraded. We've got to check on this. I don't know if they've upgraded the old Cold War, the guys who applied for Cold War Warriors Act as a Cold War warrior, which was on active duty, let's say, between 1955 and 1962. I don't know if they've upgraded them automatically. I don't see why they wouldn't, but it's New York City, so you don't know. Yes. Well, what about um, Afghanistan, Iraq? Oh, those guys get it anyway. Almost anybody's been on active duty since 1990. Okay. And does this apply to the, the spouse? If if the the I should say husband because you right. know obviously lately a, a lot of military people are are female, but the spouse of the veteran is entitled to the exemption if the veteran dies until they get remarried. And then one more: um, Can you have two exemptions at the same time? Yes, you could have three exemptions. Okay, you could have a star program exemption, which almost anybody's entitled to. And then you have the enhanced star, and that's based on income. If your income is less than $500,000, you're entitled to the star. So that's almost everybody. And then enhanced star, I'm not sure what the number is right now, but let's say about 90000 Then you're entitled to the enhanced star. If you're a senior citizen, you're over 65, and your income is under $60,000 a year, under, then you're entitled to the senior citizen's exemption. And this is one exemption that, in a lot of cases, people walk in the office and you ask them about it. Do you have the exemptions? And, of course, most of the time, the the average person on the street doesn't know the difference between having an enhanced star exemption, having a veteran's exemption, or having senior citizen's exemption. They don't know. Um, but if we can always check it out if you come in, what exemptions are on your property. It's all on a computer right now. There are no secrets about these things. But if you are a senior citizen, you're over 65 years of age, and your income is less than $60,000 a year, then you're entitled to a senior citizen exemption. And this is why it's important sometimes not to put your son or daughter's name on the deed. You know, you're a senior citizen, you're making $55,000 a year in your Social Security and pension, whatever it is, and you got the senior citizen exemption on your property. Then you put your your son or daughter's name on the deed. They're making whatever amount of money. Obviously, they're not under 55. You've lost your senior citizen's exemption. 
Now, veterans exemption, you don't lose. Let's say for the sake of argument, you're a veteran, you put your daughter's name on the deed. You're still a veteran. You still get your exemption on the property. But still, it's not the best way to do things. But at least you don't lose your exemption on the property if you're a veteran. You know, which and and the thing is, the spouse of a veteran is also entitled to the exemption if the veteran lives with her. So, you know, sometimes you might say, well, you know, um, let's say wife inherited the house from her parents. Husband's name was never on the deed and said, do you have the veteran's exemption on the property? My husband was never name was never on the deed. I inherited the house from my parents. You're still entitled to the veteran's exemption. You know, so the veteran exemption goes to, you know, a veteran and his spouse if they're living in the same house or the widow of a veteran. And that probably should be updated now, too, when you're thinking about it. But I think that's even, you know, unmarried, unremarried spouse of a veteran, deceased veteran. Uh, but like I said, if you want to come to our office and talk about these things, make sure you have the exemptions you have. You don't want extra money going to New York State or New York City in taxes. And and there, you know, there there are other things available. Now, you may have a family members disabled. Now, you don't get a disability pension and a senior citizen's exemption. But again, if the owner of the house is disabled, you might might be entitled to an exemption there. And one of the things which is sometimes disappointing, let's say you have a brother or sister owning a house together. They inherit it from their parents. They may not get the, the senior citizen exemption because maybe the brother has a $50,000 income and the sister has a $50,000 in income. And combined, they have a $100,000 income where if they own a house separately, they would be entitled to, to have the senior citizen exemption. The only thing is, look at your tax bill when it's going to come out. I mean, your tax bills came out beginning of July. If you're a veteran, you don't have veterans in there, take a look at it. We have to wait, unfortunately, till next year. But if if you're one of those veterans that was in the, you know, the in-between periods, like 1955 to 1962, Elvis. Elvis be entitled to a veteran's exemption today. He wasn't entitled to a veteran's exemption when he was discharged back in whatever, 1957. Nicole, you have any idea of who I'm talking about with Elvis? You give me a blank stare. I know who Elvis <laughs> is. Was, How I rude. I saw the movie and everything. You saw what movie? There was just an Elvis movie that came out. Uh, these these are, you know, reenacting actors. It's I think there have been a couple about his life. You Wasn't mean to Kurt tell Russell in one of I think Boba, Boba Hotep yeah. was the most um, realistic oh. one. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> that I don't know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic. See over here on the wall? He's been on our show before. He the was guy in played him. Bubba Hotep. <laughs> classic. Classic. I guess it's a horror movie, but... Clever. Horror comedy, I guess. Yeah, yeah horror comedy, done. whatever. So what are the questions you've come across in the last Keeping in in line with the exemptions that we've talked about, people come in all the time and they say, can they have exemptions on their co-op? Is that a thing? Yeah. The exemptions apply to co-op. The only thing is with your co-op, the co-op board has to make an adjustment through your shared taxes or whatever and put it on there. But yeah, the, the if you look at the form for an exemption, it says, is, this, uh, is your residence... A 
cooperative and, you know, what's the block and lot and so forth and so on. And, yeah, it's a, it's a little more difficult. And part of it, you have to keep on track of the co-op and make sure they put in all the paperwork. But, yes, you're entitled to, if it's your residence, you live in New York City, you're entitled to either a veteran, senior citizens or star program exemption if you're entitled to it otherwise. Just because it's a co-op doesn't mean you're not. And New York State... New York isn't just sending out these forms, right? People have to actively pursue it. They don't know if you're entitled to the senior citizens or the veterans exemption. You have to get the forms offline. I think so. I don't think anybody ever writes you a letter saying you're a senior citizen now. Take a look at your real estate taxes. And I know very well that nobody ever wrote the veterans and said, hey, you know, we've expanded the the definition of veterans. And I can tell you right now, there are probably a lot of veterans or the, the widowed spouses of veterans who are now entitled to that exemption they just put in from 1955 to 1962 who don't know it. And, you know, that's one of the things when you have a consultation with us, we'll take a look at the real estate tax bill and see if you're getting all the exemptions you're entitled to. Now, sometimes we ask a question we're not sure because we don't know exactly what your income is because the income could be from all sources and all owners. Yes, Beth? Well, how many how many exemptions are there? Are we talking about all of them? Is that it? You got the star, the enhanced star, the senior citizens, the veterans, and the disability. And if you have, and I think there's one for clergy too, but I've never used it. Yeah, but there is one for clergy. Okay, if you disability, like if you have a parsonage or something, right? If you disability, that's not age prohibitive or money prohibitive. Right? It is money prohibitive. Yeah, it's money prohibitive. Okay, yeah. But age, no. No. Okay. You know, but you can't have disability and senior citizen works in the same thing. Just like if you collect Social Security, you can't collect Social Security disability and retirement Social Security. It's one or the other. Right, right. I got you. You know, so a lot of people, when they they have disability when they're 65 or 66, and then it turns to retirement disability when they reach the next birthday. Right. The next issue we come up on is even if people are getting their exemptions and they're in a co-op, what happens if the co-op doesn't allow a trust? How can they avoid probate and keep their exemptions? Is there even a way? The co-op doesn't allow a trust. We're stuck with the the rules of the co-op. You know, if you own a house, you have a deed to a house or most condos, 95 percent of the condos. If you have a deed to the condo, a deed to the house. You come into our office, you say, I want to put my property into a trust. We change the deed. We put it into a trust. And it's done within a matter of weeks. And, and, you, and you know, and that's something a lot of people ask me sometimes, how long does this process take? Well, if you come in and you tell us what you want to do, we can have the trust and the deed prepared and signed within a couple of weeks. Now, sometimes it takes longer because you're not sure whether you're going to have you know, you, you got four kids and you're not sure whether you're going to have one kid as trustee or all four or some combination thereof. And you're not sure whether you want to leave everything to the kids equally or whether you want to leave something to the grandchildren. And sometimes you think it over and kick it around for a while. But if you tell us, I have a house, I want to leave it to my three children in three equal shares. I want this child to be trustee. I want another child to be a second trustee in case something happens. You tell us that, we have all the names and addresses. The work will be done in two weeks. And I know a lot of people, you know, they, they, and sometimes I can almost not understand it. Well, I went to this other lawyer, and uh, I, I gave him everything, and two months later I called him, and I didn't get an answer, and I'm not sure whether my trust is done or not. If you come to see us, the trust will be done in a, a, almost always, I would say, 90% of our trusts are done within a month. 
Now, sometimes, yes, we have some complicated trusts where we have millions of dollars in assets and properties in different states and things like that that could take a while. But assuming you get you got one or two houses, I want to leave it to my children in equal shares and there's no complications. We'll have that trust done, you know, in a, in a matter of weeks. It doesn't take forever. You have to make up your mind and figure out what you want to be, which child is in charge. Do you want to leave anything to the grandchildren? Do you want to leave a full share to your son or daughter? Maybe they're off the reservation a little bit. Do you know? Do you have a disabled child? Do we want to leave them to outright, or we want to leave them to them in further a supplemental needs trust so it doesn't interfere with their benefits? Do you want to leave something to the dog? Um, that and that is very important. I mean, what about our auto? What about him? Is he being ca- taken care of? I mean, his his pop pop is an attorney who specializes in trusts, pet trusts. Yeah, well, you take a look at your will and see who's in trust for Otto. But does it have to go in the will? Shouldn't he have his own outside of the will? I guess if there was a question of avoiding probate with Otto, we should. But that would mean all something would happen to all three of us together in an accident. Well, what if we so. go on a trip, which, um, you know, family and friends, we go on trip to, trips together. What would happen to Otto if he doesn't have a pet trust? I'm sure somebody would take care of him. All right, but I think I I think when we get off the radio today, I think we ought to discuss Otto's trust. Just saying. And just so you guys know, Otto is probably the most well-traveled dog in all of America. <laughs> so I really hope nothing happens to all three of you because he will probably be with all three of you. <laughs> but uh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. But building on that, when we talk about the trusts and everything, we've been having a lot of people calling saying that their accountants told them or they read that the laws are changing in regards to irrevocable trust and they're losing the stepped up in cost basis as soon as they put anything in an irrevocable trust. There's different types of irrevocable trusts that people don't understand. But can we tell the people a little bit about our irrevocable trust and why all the rumors are not true? Well, the rumors are true. They are changing an irrevocable trust. They are changing the rules. But basically, in New York, especially, we have these hybrid trusts, which are part revocable, part irrevocable. And those trusts still get the stepped up basis. Basically, the law is if your if your house is included in your taxable estate, then the house gets the stepped up basis. And then somebody says, hey, wait a minute, I don't want my house to be in a taxable estate. Yeah, but if your estate is worth less than $6.5 million in New York, and remember, between husband and wife, we can make that $6.5 million for husband, $6.5 million for wife. So if your estate is worth less than $13 million, we don't care if it's part of your taxable estate. It'll go out tax-free, but it'll get the stepped-up basis for Medicaid. Almost 90, 98 99% of the trusts we have done you will get the stepped-up basis. Now, you might say, wait a minute, how do I know I'm not the 1%? Well, if you did the 1%, you probably know it because the only time we would do it to take it out of the estate is somebody had assets greatly in excess of $13 million and we were trying to make gifts. And let's say you had a vacation home and you're, there was no plans to sell the vacation home or obviously rent it out. We might make a gift of a vacation home to try to reduce the estate tax 
and you would not get the stepped-up basis. But if you're in that situation, between husband and wife, you would have assets greatly in excess of $13 million before we use that strategy. So that's what I'm saying. 99% of, of the trusts we do do not have – we would keep the stepped-up basis in what we do. It's it's Again, I'm not going to be sitting here and hoping the government gets more money out of your estate. We don't want your children to pay taxes. I no, no matter how bad your children might be, they'll do a better job of spending your money than the government will be. I have no doubt about that. I don't care if your kid takes all your money, cashes it in, goes to Atlantic City, and blows it. At least he's providing jobs to the people at Atlantic City. Absolutely. They're spending money in the other parts of the economy, and hopefully your son or daughter's having Absolutely. a good time. Absolutely. It's not City in Washington. Meanwhile. Right. So whatever else, I'm sure your kids can do a better job spending your money. And, you know, like sometimes we've been talking about, hey, these billionaires' kids, they, they buy these boats and they buy these expensive cars. Well, you know what? People make those boats. People make those cars. They collect salaries, and that money gets distributed, you know, through the economy. Spending money is good for the economy. Yeah, we all should be spending money wisely. But again, uh, did this government spend money wisely? No. Am I tell me where the government is spending money wisely? Never. Yeah. So we we want the money to go to your children, or your friends, or neighbors, or you know collateral relatives or even charities. I mean, almost every charity will do a better job than the government at helping people out. Yeah. All right. I think it's time for us to take a break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. 
Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest has been on the show many times. We've talked about a variety of different subjects, mostly in history. But we talked about Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp and Tombstone and Daniel Boone. And most importantly, Gil Hodges and why Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame. And at one time, we didn't think that was going to happen, but fortunately, it did. But today, we're going to talk about something totally different from Gil Hodges, the Texas Rangers. As our next guest said, not the baseball team, but the organization. Tom Clavin, welcome back to Connor's Corner. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. Okay, so the Texas Rangers. Why did you decide to write the book about the Texas Rangers? What's what's appealing to you? Why do you think the, the public should know more about it? You know, I, 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 my recollection is my interest in it began when I was working on the, my book on Wild Bill Hickok, which is surprisingly called Wild Bill. And uh, there's, there's a scene or a couple of scenes in, in that book involving a confrontation that Hickok had with the outlaw John Wesley Harden, who is known as, as you know, a, a man killer. That's one of the terms they used in those days because that's what he did. And um, I was doing a little more research into John Wesley Harden as far as portraying him as a character in the book. And it mentioned that a little bit later, after this confrontation with Hickok, a few years later, he had a confrontation with the Texas Ranger, Landon McNally. And uh, because of that, he was chased out of Texas and went to Florida, where he was eventually arrested. And I said, well, that's interesting. I never heard of Leander McNally. I mean, I've heard of a few famous, the more famous Texas Rangers, but like Jack Hayes, for example, and and, and uh, Walker and a couple of Sam Walker. But uh, I said, that's interesting. So I put it aside. I said, when I get a chance. And then separately, as it was still percolating, uh, I, I found out that 2023 was the bicentennial of the Texas Rangers. And it's remarkable to me that any law enforcement agency could be 200 years old, and they're 100 years older than the FBI. So I uh, I said, you know, you know, maybe the timing is right in co- coinciding with the anniversary to do a story about Leander McNally and the Texas Rangers. And the more I looked into it, the more convinced I was that there was a story there because McNally was a remarkable character. And one of the things on his resume, which you don't read about in the history books, is that in 1875, as a climactic moment in, in my book, in 1875, uh, he and his, his company of, of 26 Rangers invaded Mexico. Uh, they just went across the Rio Grande and started fighting. And uh, I said, well, that's 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 something that's pretty remarkable. And again, you don't see it in the history books. So that, that got me more and more interested. And I had to, uh, by the time I got around to putting these pieces together, I had a bit of a tight deadline because I wanted the book to come out as early in, eight, in, in 2023 as possible because of the anniversary of the Bicentennial. Okay. Now, we say Bicentennial. We go back in history. Now, Texas obviously was not a state back then. What was Texas in, in 1823? 1823, Texas was a colony of, of Mexico. Uh, it had been originally a colony when it was first uh, settled. Uh, when 
Moses Austin, uh, who is the, 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 the father, the so-called father of Texas, Stephen Austin, was the one who got the okay uh, from Spanish authorities, to which, which owned Texas and Mexico at the time, to bring a settlement of, say, 300 families to Texas. And the, the Spanish authorities loved the idea because they said, well, we're having a lot of problem with Indian tribes. We'll put the gringos in between us and the Indians, and we'll be safe. And they, if they die, well, that's not our problem. So... So by the time that Stephen Austin, uh, Moses Austin passed away, Stephen Austin led those 300 families. Then it was a, Mexico was independent from Spain, and Texas was a colony. And it stayed that way until really you know, the Texas Revolution in 1836 when it became a republic, and then eventually in 1845, Texas became a state. So what were the Rangers doing, let's say, in, in the 1820s into 1835, so forth? Well, mostly they, they were tasked with border patrol. And... What would happen throughout the 1820s and 1830s and, and is that the border of Texas kept expanding because the 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 Anglo part of, of Texas sort of is a very is a small colony in the southeast portion of Texas, and then as more and more families arrived and as the Mexican government paid less and less attention to them, it, the borders kept expanding because more farms were were settled, uh, ranches were started, uh, and so the as the border got expanded, there were more uh, there's more land to patrol. So it was in 1823, in August 1823, that, that Stephen Austin sent out a, a a message saying that I need rangers to help help protect our families on the border from uh, in Indian raids. And so that was the first time that rangers were used. That was the first time as direct reference to the word rangers as a law enforcement component in Texas. Now, how many rangers were there back then? Well, you know, it depended on what the emergency was. You know, there was no, there was no strict. Uh, it wasn't until years and years later that there was an actual Texas Ranger division or department or agency. But back in the early days, it was okay if, if there was a uh, uh, a farm was attacked by uh, by Comanche, uh, then maybe you get eighteen Rangers would, would respond. I mean, they were they were Rangers slash farmers. Rangers was was not an occupation that one could do full time. Uh, as, as today, of course, you can, you can be a full-time ranger. That's the same thing as being a state policeman. But in those days, if you had uh, a raid by uh, uh, Kiowa, Comanche, uh, 18 rangers might respond, 12 might respond. Depends who, who found out the soonest, who could respond, was able to respond the soonest. And once the emergency has passed, either just the, the raiders took off and never came back again, or there was some kind of confrontation. Once that was over... These people went back to what they were doing. They were farmers. They were ranchers. They were store clerks. Uh, they were, you know, you whatever they were occupied as blacksmiths. So it wasn't really until uh, really after the Civil War that there was such a thing as the Texas government funding a ranger agency, Texas Rangers agency, that made for at least for at least a period of time of a year or two years, sometimes three years, you were your full time occupation was Texas Ranger. Now during the the Mexican-American War, what was the role of the Texas Rangers? The Mexican-American War was, was where mostly the Rangers uh, took off their Ranger badges and, and volunteered in Texas military units. Uh, a lot of them basically washed off to war. Now, not all of them could not because you still had, okay, the Mexicans and the Americans were fighting each other, but the Indians were not part of this at all. They were, I mean, they were basically saying, we're still going to conduct our raids. We're still going to defend our land from, from encroaching uh, Anglos. And so there's a certain amount of Texas Rangers had to stay at, at their posts and their jobs 
uh, be mustered out when there was an emergency, in when there was an emergency. Uh, but a lot of the ranges, and Sam Walker is a very good uh, example of this. Sam Walker uh, joined up with the American military. And uh, there were even Texas Ranger units that were special units that usually were used as scouting, scout patrols by the American military. Walker died during the Mexican-American War quite heroically uh, at the taking of one of the Mexican cities. And uh, he became one of those legendary uh, rangers also because he had had the foresight to, he went up to visit uh, uh, the, the manufacturer of the Colt revolver, Samuel Colt, and he saw this revolver and he said that it was the, federal, the United States government had turned, turned down. And he saw this five-shot revolver and he actually consulted with, with Colt to make it turn into a six-shot revolver, which became known as the, as the Walker Colt revolver. And he brought, they brought hundreds of them back to Texas, which really made a huge difference immediately, somewhat in the war between Mexico but also, especially afterwards, when they were fighting Indian tribes who had no idea that the, these, these rangers were now carrying guns that didn't shoot just one bullet at a time, but could shoot six. So when was, when was the first time, let's say, there was a conflict where the, the Colt six-shooter had an impact on a battle? I think it's a pretty historic moment. Yeah, there, there's, there's one of the battles, and in, 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 is described in, in my book, where... Uh, and I think it was it was uh, Hayes, uh, John Coffey Hayes, was another one of the legendary Ranger caption, captains. He was leading. Uh, he was chasing a uh, group of Indians that were had conducted a raid, and then they were, they got themselves in an exposed position, and the, the Indians sort of stopped and turned around and said, "Well, wait a minute, what are we running for? There's like there's like a hundred of us, and it's like twelve of them. So let's not instead of running, why don't we turn around and attack them and kill them?" So they turned around. Basically, the the rangers under Hayes had to put their horses down and use them as breastworks, basically, and hide out during the uh, hide behind them as the Indians approached. But when the Indians got closer, the rangers sort of stood up and they started firing with their cold pistols. And the the Indians were used to the tactic of all right, once the once a pistol is fired, then you charge because it's going to take a while to reload that pistol. So the the, the, the rangers all fought, fired around a volley, and so the Indians. Said, okay, great. Now's our chance. Let's get let's get really close and kill these guys. As they got closer, they more of them got killed because they, they the Rangers are firing a fifth, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, and they had an extra extra um, uh, a, a, a cylinder in, the, in, the, in their pockets, so they could actually fire up to twelve bullets in space of uh, you know thirty seconds. And the Indians were just stunned. I mean, in addition to the fact they were falling by the wayside left and right off their horses, they were so stunned they had no idea that that this firepower was was available to the to the, the the white man so they turned around and then they took off because they just suffered heavy losses they couldn't risk any more now how 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 long were the texas rangers fighting the comanches what you know when did that kind of end the hostilities with the comanches well it ended um uh you know there's a there's a wonderful book by sam uh, sc Gwynn called uh let's see it's uh, it's uh Something of the summer moon, um, and it's about the Comanches under under uh, Quanah Parker, one of the, the great half white, half Comanche chiefs. And the Comanche fought the, the Texas Rangers well into the 1860s, and into in the 1850s and into the, in the 1860s. There were there were several battles in which there were heavy losses that the Comanches suffered. And they basically retreated west pretty much out of Texas because they they, they basically had to re, 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 voluntarily removed from the land because 
you know, the, the, the Comanche birth rate, they couldn't keep up with their losses. And it wasn't just losses from battles and guns. We have to remember, you know, the vast majority of Native Americans who died as, as the white Europeans went farther and farther west did not die by gunshot. They died by disease, uh, smallpox, cholera, other diseases that they had no immunity to. So the Comanche population by the 1860s was so significantly reduced that they pretty much ended as a, as a as a resistance force of resistance in the West. All right. Well, uh, let's get back to the Texas Rangers. So we have the the Mexican American War. We have the the time after the Colt forty five. What what were what were the Texas Rangers like just before the Civil War and during the Civil War? Well, the same thing sort of happened in the Civil War as happened in the Mexican American War. Many of the Texas Rangers signed up. In, uh, in Texas, state, 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 by then Texas was a state, state of Texas uh, units to go fight the Yankees. And, uh, not, again, not all of them because the, they were still, even though the Comanche and some other tribes' effectiveness were greatly reduced, they still would conduct raids. Sometimes they conducted raids because they had no choice but to conduct raids because they were starving. And so they would attack settlements and just, even not, not, to, not even to harm anybody, just was willing to steal food. So Texas Rangers had to have some, uh, ability to continue to do their border patrol activities, but uh, many of them, uh, John Coffee Hayes, others, uh, you know, they 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 became uh, uh, Confederate soldiers, and 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 especially uh, cavalrymen because they were so good with horses, and they could shoot for while riding their horses, which is not a common uh, practice among many of the cavalry who had to learn how to do that. That's what Texas Rangers did. They learned that for the, by the time they joined the Texas Rangers, they could ride and shoot at the same time. And it's when the Civil War begins is when we first meet. The main character of my book, Follow Me to Hell, and that's Leander McNelly, because he uh, was born in Virginia, but he came to Texas uh, with his brother. The idea being not only did they want to settle in Texas, but um, McNelly had what we what they were calling at the time consumption, which we know more more familiar with as tuberculosis. And the Texas climate thought might thought either cure him, although I think most people knew he knew even then it was not incurable, but maybe extend his life, or certainly his quality of life, for as long as possible. So when the war broke out, he was only 17 years old. He enlisted in the in the Confederate Army, uh, and he became a scout. Uh, by the time he was 21 years old, he was a, he's a, a chief of scouts and a captain. And that's where we meet some of the adventures he had during the Civil War when he was when he mustered out. The war ended. He was still only 21 years old, and he represented. He was not a ranger himself, but he encountered and served under rangers who were older than him who had joined the Confederate Army once the Civil War began. All right, so he. What what did he do after the Civil War? What's the book about? What's what's his encounter with John Wesley Hart? Well, if you can the, get to that later, but yeah, there's sort of an interlude there because, like I say, he was only 21 when the war ended in 1865, and he went back home to Washington County, and uh, his family had a farm there. But he, what made him turn into a real farmer was that he, he met a young woman whose parents had, had owned something like a thousand acres in Washington County. And by the time at the end of the war, both her parents had passed away. So she was the owner of all these thousands of acres of farmland, good farmland. So she and McNelly uh, married. And so he became the head of the household, as things were in those days. And uh, he became a, a farmer, worked very hard to create the farm. He and his wife had two children. And that was probably, you know, going to be his, his occupation for the rest of his life as a farmer. But the, uh, the uh, responding to all kinds of dangers that uh, Texas government perceived, they started a state police and they asked McNelly, who had really 
exited the Confederate Army with quite a good reputation, if he would become uh, a member of the state police, which he did. State police was short-lived, and then they raised up, they made the Texas Rangers a regular department, a regular, you, you could, this was the time when you could become a Texas Ranger and, and for the entire year be a Texas Ranger, you get paid to be a Texas Ranger. You needed no other occupation but be a Texas Ranger. So when McNelly was offered a captaincy, he took it. He was still only something like 30, 29, 28 years old when he became a captain in the Texas Rangers. And that's when his adventures began of uh, with his men. So this company varied between 26 and 40 men. But he became sort of like a SWAT team for Texas. Like the government would say, things are really hot over here. I'm going to send in McNelly's Rangers. Or things are hot over here, I'll send McNelly's Rangers. And that's how the rest of the book talks about the the adventures that he and his men went on to try and in the most difficult circumstances. So give us some examples, not not that we want to spoil the book, but types of events that happened. Well, there was one county in Texas uh, that uh, was experiencing it, it was these two families had been feuding for, for years and they made the half fields of McCoy's look like, you know, Sesame Street. And so people were dying left and right because they were being assassinated. They were being shot on the uh, if, if you were riding at, at night on uh, on a lonely road, you get ambushed. It was the Sutton family against the Taylor family, and so it got so bad that everybody in the county felt unsafe, felt they were at risk. So the governor sent McNally's Rangers in there and said, "You got to bring peace to this county." And on the side of the Taylor family was John Wesley Hart. He's related by marriage to the Taylor family. He was like their top gunman. But McNally and his rangers got in there. They started finding ways to arrest people, put them behind jail, kill them if they had to. <laughs> so, although McNally said, I'm sent here to stop the killing, not to keep killing. But sometimes it's inevitable. If, 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 you're, if they're trying to arrest somebody, pull the gun, bullets would fly. And so finally, the word was that the, the John Wesley Hart and the McNally's coming, Leanna McNally's coming for you personally. And that's when Harden said, you know what? I think it's time to leave Texas. And so we we were robbed of the of, of a what would have been a remarkable scene of McNelly and Harden actually facing each other and having some kind of shootout. But but Harden decided he just hopped on a train or his horse. I can't remember how he left, but he left. He took his, his wife and his kids. He's a sort of domestic actually known for his domesticity when he wasn't killing people. <laughs> and uh, they 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 left Texas and uh, moved to Florida, where sometime later he was eventually arrested by a different Texas Ranger uh, who was out of his jurisdiction. But nobody told Harden that. You know, I think it's worth bringing up to, for the audience, but can you describe the encounter between Wild Bill Hickok and John Wesley Harden? Yeah, in 1871, which is four years, four or five years before the events that I just described took place uh, in, in, in Texas, uh, it was one of the times when Harden was on the run, one of his you know, numerous killings. And uh, he usually managed to evade the law, and this time he did again by leaving Texas. He said, I think I'll go to Kansas for a while, hide out for a bit. And so he decided to hide out in Abilene. Now, the marshal of Abilene at the time was John, John uh, was Hickok, Wild Bill Hickok. And he knew that there was a warrant out for, for John Wesley Harden. They, they sort of confronted each other, sized each other up on the street. There could have been a shootout right there, but Hickok sort of took a liking to the younger man. He says, oh, this guy's kind of charming. And, 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 and Harding was saying, Ah, this is the great Wild Bill Hickok. Well, I don't want to mix things, mix things up, mix things up with him. So Wild Bill made him a deal. He said, "Listen, I don't like Texans anyway, so I'm not going to worry about the. I don't, I'm not going to worry about the warrant." Because Hickok, by the way, fought on the Union side, and so Texas was still the enemy to him in the Civil War. 
He said, I, as long as you promise not to kill anybody, you can stay here in Abilene and hide out. So Harden said, good, that's a deal. Now, Harden always claimed that he managed to take Hickok's guns away from him, but that's just a story he made up in his autobiography. He also, in addition to his domesticity, was a writer and wrote his own, his own autobiography. Um, so he, uh, and that was a deal, and Harden really tried to honor it, except one night he was in his hotel room, and somebody who maybe thought it was a different room or was drunk from downstairs uh, started, started to break through his hotel door, and when he finally got to the hotel door, Harden shot him and killed him. So he, he he put some bed sheets together and, and 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 climbed out his bedroom window, where he jumped into a wagon and took off into the night. And when he got he, he managed to encounter this rider coming his way, and with his gun he stole the man's horse, gave him the wagon in return, and said, "Give Wild Bill my love for me." And he took off back to Texas. <laughs> All right. So what goes on? What where does your book go on from there? From you know the the almost confrontation with John Wesley Arden. Yeah, there's there's several adventures that McNally's Rangers has, but the one I was referring to earlier uh, in the interview is that uh, uh, the governor was was really fed up with all the cattle rustling that was going on at the Mexican border. Um, there were there were you know Anglo's and Mexicans who were coming across you know these midnight raids, coming across the Rio Grande, stealing somebody's cattle, getting the splashback across the Rio Grande where they'd be rebranded. And they would be sold, sometimes to foreign interests. Sometimes these cattle would be put on boats and sent to Cuba or sent to South America. So he said, enough is enough. I got ranchers that are driving me crazy with their complaints about it. So McNally's ranges were assigned to stop the cattle rustling on the Mexican border. And McNally put it, put it like this, again, this SWAT team of, of, uh, of uh, excellent rangers, the top cream of the crop rangers together. And um, they went chasing down. They would chase down these, get word of a, a raid happening here, a raid there. They would chase them down. But the problem was sometimes these rustlers got across the river before they get caught. And the day came, and McNally was so frustrated by this because he, he could see them on the other side of the river. They get there and they're taunting them. The one time there was particularly big cattle rustling, this was in November 1875, there was a particularly big cattle rustling operation going on, and they were taking him across the river. McNally and his men showed up. And this is where the title of the book comes, because he says, men, you know, we're going to go into Texas. I may lead you to hell, but if you follow me, I'll lead you back out. I'm going we're go- I'm going over to Texas, uh, over to Mexico, to get those cattle back. Who's going with me? And all 26 of his men said, we're, we're with you, you know, boss, basically. So they crossed the river into Mexico and took on the me- me- first Mexican army they found, which is 800 men against 26. <laughs> that They weren't doing too good in that battle, so they retreated to the Mexican border of the Rio Grande, but they refused to leave Mexico. They dug in on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande, where their superior firepower with their sharp rifles, other rifles, their pistols, they they killed somebody of the Mexican, attacking Mexican army. The Mexican army retreated. So then when there was a standoff, and the U.S. continued, U.S. army showed up, and there was palaver back and forth, and, and Mexico was sending, sending diplomats there to tell McNally that. And finally, a, a message came from uh, President Ulysses S. Grant in Washington saying, uh, to McNally, you got to get out of Mexico because otherwise there's going to be this huge war with another war with Mexico if you don't get out of Mexico. And, and McNally uh, penned a response that was then telegraphed back to Washington. Uh, Tell the president and the government of the United States to go to hell. We're going back in. And so they, they loaded, locked and loaded and got ready to go back into Mexico to, to, to finish the job they began. I don't want to tell you anymore because that would ruin the big right. moment in the book. All right. So what's the name of the book? Follow me to hell, McDowell and the I'm trying to remember the title and, and the uh, 
I can't remember the subtitle all of a sudden, but they make, it's called Follow Me to Hell. And it's about McNally's Rangers. As I just said, the title came from when he was basically drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, I'm going, I'll lead you to hell, but I'll, I'll lead you back out if you follow me. Who's going to come with me? And all 26 of his men crossed that line in the sand with their horses and said, we're, we're, we're behind you. Let's go. All right. Well, we look forward to reading it. Thank you again for uh, sharing history with us, bringing history to life. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I sure appreciate it. All right, Tom. Take care. You too. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Now, Beth, if if you heard Tom Clavin, you know he's going to be doing a book about the Doolin Dalton Gang or the Dalton Gang. Oh, I heard about them. You're right. So, how, where'd you hear about the Doolin Dalton Gang? Well, everybody knows probably I was born in Louisiana, but we moved to Longview when I was about twelve, and the First National Bank of Longview had been robbed by this gang, and the People of Longview weren't very passive. They fought back. And a couple of the people were shot. And, well, one of them got hanged, and they just left him hanging in the middle of the street for a long time to discourage people. You know, and to this day, I don't think First National Bank of Longview has been robbed. Not since then. Well, maybe that works. All right. Now... You know, the, this story about Leanne McNally and the Texas Rangers, it kind of reminds you of uh, Charlton Heston and Major Dundee. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yep. No, absolutely. That's that's one of those Westerns that just is uh, brimming with personality. But, yes, no, that, that episode does remind you of that. By the way, if you're ever around Waco, I got a chance about two years back to go to the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and, uh, and Museum. And it's it's really a cool spot. You get a lot of history. Unfortunately, we were on the road, so I only had a, about a couple hours there. It's a lot to take in. It's a, it's a cool spot to visit. And so, yeah, if y'all are around Texas, I highly recommend it. All right. So, you know, listen, pick up Tom Clavin's book if you're interested in history. He's, he's an easy writer, easy to follow, relaxing read. Page-turning adventures. Right. Know. Right, and he picks good parts of history. Daniel Boone, Wild Bill Hickok, Tombstone, uh, Bat Masterson. You know, the one thing that I learned from his book is Bat Masterson. You know, un- unfortunately, we think of Bat Masterson as Gene Barry on the TV show. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't stand that guy. But Bat Masterson was a tough character. And of those guys like Wyatt Earp, and Go- he was the man who was feared. 
and respected as much as anybody. Um, and obviously came to New York and became a newspaper writer in New York over the years and was given a marshal's job by Teddy Roosevelt for New York City. That's another, that's a story we need to talk about again one day. All right. Teddy Roosevelt in New York City. So, Michael, people have been asking about the seminars and listen, we, we haven't, we're not going to do seminars again until October, but where can they uh, see it, our, the version of our seminar on YouTube? It's a little out of date, but the, not too much. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be doing anything anyway on the fly without the up-to-date laws and everything else. But um, if you want to find it, we made, you know, we made this when everyone was kind of locked down. And it's still a useful resource for you to kind of get an idea of what you're going up against when it comes to estate planning. Give you an idea of what some of your blind spots may be. So just go to YouTube.com, nice and simple, and punch in Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar. And the first result should be a nice long video with Dad right there. And what if you want to check in on the Toy Soldiers? And um, Michael Connor's Toy Soldier Collection, if you punch that into the search terms, you'll see a video from CBS New York, the Ultimate Toy Soldier Collection. And so that's another one, too. You can also search Michael Connor's Connor's Corner Steve Forbes for more on Toy Soldiers for that from that interview. But the Toy Soldier Collection is approaching 300,000 hits now. In any event, if you want to talk to us about estate planning, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We talk about estate planning, how you save your house from nursing home bills, how to avoid probate, and avoid problems from your family in the future. See you next week at the same time and places. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.